0: The climate of broadband deployment of the past 10-plus years has not lended itself to transparency. With lack of a large unified national plan, the business model has been to cherry-pick certain markets. And so we have a tremendous amount of, if you imagine, Swiss cheese. The cheese is the networks, the holes are the communities that have been left behind. And that's where Communities Unlimited works. We work with the communities that have been left behind.
1: Welcome back to Small Talk with Communities Unlimited. My name is Chris Baker. It is the podcast for Communities Unlimited. And uh, we're speaking with Catherine Kranz today. She is our Area Director of Broadband. Catherine, welcome to episode number two.
0: Hi there. Great to be back.
1: Episode number two, what I want to talk about was we talked in the first episode really about broadband basics. Why, some of the how, some of the terminology, I want to get into, from a community's perspective, I'm talking now, imagining a person listening to this podcast who is a community member. Maybe they've been tempted. Maybe they're tasked with getting this thing solved. I'm going to ask you a really broad question. Community planning for broadband. How do you do it? What do you do? Where does that start?
0: Well, that's such an important question because when I um, talk to communities, they always tell me... We know we have a problem, but we don't even know where to begin. And that is the truth. They could solve it if they knew what it was and how much it was going to cost. But communities don't even know, is this a $5 million problem? Is this a $50 million problem? Is this a $5,000 problem? And because they don't have a great understanding of the technology or the finances of it, they're just really intimidated. And so a large part of what I do as a broadband advocate, broadband educator, is help communities understand the basics so they feel a little bit more comfortable in these conversations. I mean, you you all know what it feels like to be at a, a workshop or a seminar, and it seems like everyone else in the room knows more than you, and you just sit there quietly and absorb, well, that's where our rural communities are. They're sitting quietly, they're not advocating for themselves or their community because they're intimidated and assuming that everyone knows more than them. Our goal with Communities Unlimited is to offer broadband technical assistance to go into these communities, help them understand the basics so that they can be better advocates for themselves. So most important thing is for people to understand what is broadband, Why is it important? And then they have to understand their existing infrastructure. And that's a challenge. We talked a little bit about that um, the last podcast. Just how do you identify what your assets are? And that's the first step.
1: How do you do that? Because I have (laughs) zero experience with that whatsoever. I don't even know what you're talking about when you say assets.
0: Well – First thing you need to do is identify the internet service providers, the ISPs that are working in your community. And you probably know some of them, but you probably don't know all of them. And um, there are tools that you can go online to search for uh, internet service providers in your area, or if it's a small enough community, you might just know. You see the the signs on the side of the road, you see the advertising, and unfortunately. We have, for some reason, developed a bit of an adversarial adversarial relationship with the Internet ser- service providers in our community. And some of it's warranted, um, but most of it is not, especially in rural communities. If a company is willing to make the investment to deploy broadband in a rural community, you already know that profit's not their main motivator. It's one thing if you're in a metropolitan area. We talked a little bit in the last podcast about households per mile, population density, and broadband infrastructure is just very expensive. And the more potential customers you have per mile, the more you can justify the expense. Well, we all know in rural communities, just not that many people. So for a provider to offer service, they're already proving that they're not only in it for the money. So um, sometimes when we have these attitudes about service providers overcharging, being unreliable, um, some of it is is unwarranted. Not to say all of it. I mean, obviously, there has been business models where they provide a low-level service and not great customer service. So I'm not saying that, that there's not some justification. But um, the main thing to know is that if you have a service provider that's willing to work in your community, it will only benefit you to get to know them
1: better. Do you have the ability to contact service providers, say you're a community leader, or is it a situation where the con- the service providers are generally coming to you?
0: Well, you know, that's a really good question, because I will tell you, traditionally, service providers were not coming to you, unless, of course, they were a co-op, electric co-op, mm-hmm. or a telephone co-op. A lot of them have transitioned into offering broadband service to their members, and they are traditionally much more community-minded um business model. So they might have a lot of community outreach and and experience reaching out to the community. But the traditional model of internet service providers, they might not have. And that was actually one of the shortcomings of the early federal subsidy funding models for broadband grants, is they didn't require any community engagement involvement by the providers at all. In fact, that was, in a lot of ways, the shortcoming of those projects that Providers were working completely independently of what the community wanted. They were basing their construction deployment decisions on finances and good markets. Um, But that's changed. This new round of money that's coming out does require a good amount of community involvement. So service providers are now reaching out to communities on their own. Um, But that doesn't mean you have to sit around and wait for them to do that. Um, As a resident, you can pick up the phone and call them and ask for their plans, their deployment plans, they're going to be a lot less likely to tell an individual specific information about where they're going to be expanding and when it's going to happen and what kind of grants they have gone out for. But a community leadership team, and that's something is one of the first steps that we do when we start broadband planning in a community. We develop a community leadership team, community stakeholders, oftentimes, you know, elected officials or but you develop a community leadership team and that way the service providers are a little bit more likely to come meet with you. And that's what you want. You want them to hear what your concerns are. Hopefully that'll give them a chance to tell you um, what their challenges are, what's keeping them from doing all the things they want to do. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's permitting concerns. Sometimes it's right of way. There's all sorts of things that you can discover once you open that conversation and that's the goal, to get the community and the service providers with a good open communication.
1: Is a good first step to contact someone like you? Is that kind of a good idea? or?
0: Well, you know, interestingly enough, now that there's so much government funding available and becoming available, there are a lot of people out there that are putting out a shingle, calling themselves broadband experts, broadband consultants – And I would just say that that a little bit of cautionary tale there, you know, not all of them are interested in the community. Some of them are interested in the money. And um, even the ones that are really good, they're probably pretty busy right now because of everything that's going on. Um, They might be expensive. So I think that unless you have good access to a community organization like Communities Unlimited or other nonprofits that have um, proven to you that they have communities in mind, Um, or unless you have a lot of money to spend, the easiest thing a community can do is just start educating themselves first. That'll save you a lot of time and frustration. Even if you do eventually decide to hire a consultant or hire a broadband planner or hire a, a broadband grants writer, the more you know before you do that, the better off you'll be. Um, it'll cost you less money and, and also less less likely to um, get into an arrangement with someone that may may or may not benefit you in the end. So.
1: And we're going to talk about this uh, in a little while, but all, I mean, it sounds like the situation where there's a hell storm and the roofers come through. Yeah. And you never may see them again. Right. One of those right. types of situations, right? You said resources and educating yourself. Is there a recommended spot that you would say people can easily go to that would just say, hey, open this discussion? Is there one of those?
0: Yeah, you know, there's a lot. And um, a lot of them are from the federal government. So I don't have a a lot of them memorized just because there's so many of them. But a simple Google search, I think the main one, and this is a funny thing with this current Administration and all the broadband work they're doing. I mean, they're just doing so much. They keep creating new websites, which is very funny to me, because they keep coming up with a website that they think is really easy to remember, but the problem is there's like a bunch of them. <laughs> so I think they might be defeating their own, but basically it's something like Internetforall.gov, and then there's something like all about Internet. I don't, I don't know. they're, they're um, a bunch of different resources that are all attached to the federal government and the BEAD program, the funding program that's going to be coming out within the next year or so. I would just say, try to find something that is a .gov. That is an actual official website of the U.S. government. Also, every state you are in will have a state broadband office. And that is another really wonderful resource. But they're all, they all have different names. Um, in Texas. It's the Broadband Development Office. The state offices are a great resource, too.
1: I want to ask you about something because um, it's very easy for people to, me, I'll say me, to look at this through the shell of my bubble. My bubble is in Northwest Arkansas. Communities Unlimited covers a seven-state region. I'm imagining the challenges per state are kind of individual to the state and maybe even down to the region, down to the city, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: What, uh, what have been some interesting challenges uh, as far as planning for broadband that you've encountered in your time?
0: It is really important to understand that every state is at a different level of um, progress, a different level of involvement. And before I came to Communities Unlimited, I had only worked in Texas and Oklahoma. And the first month Maybe even month and a half that I worked at Communities Unlimited. All I did was obsessively research all seven states to figure out where they were at. Every state now has a state broadband office. That was actually a requirement of the BEAD funds that are coming out. That they have to have an office, but some states had only created that office in response to this funding opportunity. Other states have had broadband offices for many years. Um, we mentioned in the first podcast that the US has started the U.S. started their broadband planning back in 2010, probably even before that, but their first national broadband plan was released in 2010. and um, some states took that as inspiration to get started. And I will tell you that the states that started in 2010 are further along than the states that waited until 2022. Sure. <laughs> so, so they are all at a different level of engagement. Some of them um, – the goal for the BEDE funding is for every state to have a broadband office, to have a broadband map, to have a broadband grants program. And depending on where you're at, they are at different, different stages there.
1: I remember there was the uh, FCC map uh, project. Um, you want to talk about that's a, a hard project.
0: That's a big mess, but we could talk about it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, and that's one of the things that makes planning, if you're on the community level, that's one of the things that makes planning so difficult is there's, there's multiple models and multiple, I mean, how do you pick? Right, Where do right. you start? Like, that's, that's the challenge. So it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like if you're interested in the topic— and you want to change for your community? First and foremost, educate yourself. Second, together, broad or band together, I should say. Almost said broadband together. Band together. Hmm. Band together uh, get a group uh, and start talking to some ISPs, some internet service providers. Is that about right? Yeah, that oh. sounds good. Okay, and then what after that?
0: Where do well, well, you talked a little bit about the identifying the assets and the the mapping situation. Well. Um, as I mentioned before, the climate of broadband deployment of the past 10 plus years has not lended itself to transparency. And that's unfortunate because we haven't had a unified national plan. And I, I like to compare broadband to the highway system because it's something that we can all understand. So the end result of not having a big highway plan is that for-profit businesses have created their own highway network based on the markets they want to serve. And that's, well, well understood. That's not a, a revolutionary statement. The business model, with lack of a large unified national plan, the business model has been to cherry pick certain markets. And so we have a tremendous amount of, if you imagine Swiss cheese. So the cheese is the networks. The holes are the communities that have been left behind. And that's where Communities Unlimited works. We work in the with the communities that have been left behind. And so the current funding model, which are federal subsidies, which I, I should just say really quickly, so much of what we focus on in the broadband planning world are these federal subsidy programs. But the reality is the federal government has invested far, far less than the private sector. In broadband deployment, so when I push against the providers and them picking business models, I I say that with a really informed understanding that if it had not been for private investment, we would not have had um, any kind of national broadband infrastructure because the funds that the federal government has been willing to invest have been very very small compared to what any large provider invests all day, every day. So keep in mind that the federal funding does push the narrative a lot, but it is a drop in the bucket compared to what private enterprises has invested. So, <laughs>
1: Is it fair to say that it takes both? I mean, sure. it's not going to be one or the other. It's not going to be private and it's right. not going to be federal alone. They're going to Uh, raise the bar to where it needs to be, it's going to take both.
0: Yeah, for sure. And that's why um, I really encourage communities to have good relationships with the providers that are working with them. Because at the end of the day, they are going to be the ones that solve the problem. There is such a thing as a municipal network. And that is where a community builds their own network. But that is a small, small percentage Of the networks that are out there, not to say it's not possible, but the types of communities that I work in, it's generally not a good idea because you need to have the resources and the capacity to build your own network and then maintain it and operate it. So in a community that's already struggling with other types of service delivery, I wouldn't want to put a highly technical service delivery need on them as well.
1: Sounds very attractive, right, from the beginning, right? We'll just have sure. our own, right? right. We've sure. done everything ourselves, right? We can do right. this one ourselves. But then you get in the nitty and the gritty a little bit and you start to discover, hey, this might there's there's an investment, not only like yeah. monetary, but also um, capacity, to be made. Capacity, yeah. Yeah, capacity.
0: And not only that, but if you are a community that's considering a municipal network, the first thing you need to do is check the laws of your state because most states in the nation... Allow it, and that sounds kind of crazy. But the truth is, based on our country's belief systems, um, we are a capitalist country, and we do not like publicly funded entities to compete with private enterprise. And it's you know it's kind of fair if you're using tax dollars to compete with private enterprise, then you're going to have an unfair advantage, and that's that's the justification. But at the same time. I'm a little personally on the fence about that because I think that there are certain things that taxpayer-funded money could do maybe better. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, I like I said, I'm a little on the fence. But if you're interested in a municipal network for your community, you first need to find out if it's even possible. Now, how do communities get around that or how do communities that really want to be um, really involved in the process but not the build – uh, maintain, operate a network. the The way they do that is through public private partnerships, mm-hmm. and that is where a community can be really involved in the process, but not have to do all the work. So, and the, what is a public private partnership? It's just an agreement between one or more entities, and it can be as creative as you want. This service provider owns the network. The city contributes this, or the city owns the network. This provider operates it. You know, it's. The possibilities are, are limitless as far as that.
1: And just to be clear, Catherine, we're talking about something different than, like, Wi-Fi in a city, right? We're actually talking about delivery of the Internet, correct? Yeah, right. To the Wi-Fi, right?
0: Yeah, okay. So now now we've got to talk about some, <laughs> some terminology here. What I tell people is the Internet comes to your home. Wi-Fi is inside your home. Basically, and I guess we've got to start back to the the beginning, the Internet exists some place usually a, a building full of computers called a data center. These data centers are all over the world and they're connected by cables. Some of those cables go underneath the ocean I mean that's there's actually a lined connection to everything it's it's there are such things as wireless internet but wire is always part of it so the only difference is the end of the wire then is um, transmitted by. Radio signals, Wi-Fi signals. We can't talk too much about spectrum and radio because that's a little bit too too beyond my uh, understanding. I know that the wire goes to the transmitter or the tower and then it's um, sent out from there. So even in the scenario where the Internet went to a tower, it was sent out to your home. Inside your home is still where the Wi-Fi would exist.
1: Because, you know, some people will come at this from different places. And to be clear that, you know, just because you may uh, have Wi-Fi uh, or a city's Wi-Fi, it's still got to be delivered somehow. And that's really what you're talking about is how it gets before it becomes Wi-Fi. Right. For sure. Yeah.
0: Um, The Internet would connect to whatever device would be then sending out the Wi-Fi. And when you talk about a city's Wi-Fi, I think you're talking about public. Yes. Access points. So those are usually private networks. Yes. So the internet comes to the end point, and then it goes into a private network that is then set up with hotspots. So public Wi-Fi could be within one building, or it could be within a um, downtown shopping district. Now, the infrastructure that requires that If you all have an interest in any of this, there is so much information that you can dig deeper and get way beyond. I'm a planner, so I'm a big picture thinker. I don't have a really strong understanding of all the engineering, but the resources out there totally exist. The thing to know is that Internet is outside the building. Once you're inside the building, that becomes IT. If you had seen a diagram, the Internet comes into a building, whether that building is one house or, you know, 20 floors and 500 tenants, but all of that inside stuff is private network inside.
1: There's a lot of terminology. Yeah, it's There's very confusing. a lot of options, um, and that's why we started about, and I guess I should clarify this again, because this is episode two, broadband is not a thing. It's a speed, right?
0: Yeah, so it's a- um, Threshold? Threshold? Yeah, a, a speed threshold, a, a classification, it basically means high-speed Internet. Now, also, um, there's another element to the definition that I often forget to mention. It's high-speed Internet that is continuous. Mm. So it's not an on-or-off thing. It's continuous. But it doesn't matter how it's delivered By whatever technology. It can be delivered by fiber. It can be delivered by coax cable, like your cable TV. It can be delivered through um, your phone lines, your DSL. It can be delivered wirelessly through wireless internet. It can be satellites. It can be mobile through your um, cell phone. It just has to meet the minimum threshold for speed, which is currently still 25 megabits down, three megabits up. And that's very slow. There's a lot of reasons that they keep that definition low, Pros and cons, but
1: all right. We're speaking with Catherine Krantz. She's the area director of broadband here at Communities Unlimited, and this is Small Talk with Communities Unlimited uh, Reset. Here, my name is Chris Baker. I certainly appreciate you listening in, and Catherine. We're about to get towards the end of this episode, but if you could leave a community with one, two, three things that they can do pretty easily uh, to prepare themselves for broadband and what's coming. Uh, potentially financially for them. What would those be?
0: Well, we didn't really go too much into the mapping challenges and understanding the data. And that's a real, a real big topic. I would say that the community needs to begin to educate themselves, um, understand who's already serving their area, who may be interested in serving their area, who has already received funds to serve their area. And build a leadership team now as far as the data that's another thing a community needs to understand the difference between unserved which means not having internet at all and underserved depends on the um the grant program but generally it's 100 megabits download some of it's 100 symmetrical and some of it's 20 the reason that's so important is that the grant opportunities are different for communities that have unserved populations and underserved populations. So digging into the data can be very complex, but at the very least, a community should understand if they are considered unserved. And that'll open up some doors for them if they are. Of course, the irony there is if your community is truly unserved, you're probably going to have a harder time getting to all these resources.
1: Digging into the data would be difficult. Yeah.
0: You might have to go to a public library.
1: Well, Catherine, I appreciate you joining us for Episode 2 of Small Talk with uh, Communities Unlimited. Uh, Again, my name is Chris Baker, and when we come back for Episode 3, we're going to talk funding. That's a big one. (laughs) All right. We'll see you soon. I appreciate you joining us. Small Talk with Communities Unlimited.